Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Seeking Sustainability. I am kicking off this episode with a fact, a bit of information that is a little bit morbid, if you will. Um, But did you know every day, 38,356,164 pounds of trash are dumped into our oceans? Uh, That is a number that I know, or statistic, that I know none of us can wrap our heads around or even possibly fathom or envision but I think we can all agree that that is an insane amount of trash that is a lot of trash um and that statistic is from the website of a company called United by Blue and in this episode I got to interview their co-founder it was a really cool conversation uh and listening to him and the story of the company was really interesting and it was actually one of my I would say one of my favorite conversations I've had so far on the podcast um so United by Blue's mission is to Remove one pound of trash from oceans and waterways for every product purchase, which is obviously a really ambitious but, you know, admirable mission. Um, Not a lot of companies are founded upon a mission like that, (laughs) if we're being honest. So, so far, they have removed 3,563,181 pounds of trash, which is so impressive. Um, So, yeah, in this episode, we talked about, you know, their story and why you know, the story behind why they do these cleanups and how that's kind of at the foundation of who they are. We talk about their manufacturing processes and how they're trying to remove even the smallest bits of plastic from their supply chain. We talk about materials. We talk about um, conscious capitalism, which is a really important topic. Um, So yeah, this was a great conversation. I did, (laughs) I might reference 2020 a couple times in it because I did record it back at the end of November. So, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it was recorded a while ago, but on that note, 2021 is the year for me of creating and cultivating and managing a productive workflow and work schedule, which speaking of work, I am employed, which I know doesn't sound that radical, but I've obviously, if anyone knows me, I've been uh, applying for a lot of jobs and I am an employee somewhere. So that's really, really exciting. It's my first full-time job. Um, and it's, I'm like infinitely grateful because I'm working for the coolest woman and for the coolest company. And I'm getting to learn about textiles and hemp and regenerative agriculture and soil um, and so many different things. Hopefully a little bit down the road, I'll be able to do a podcast episode about the company I work for maybe get my boss on here because she's really cool and knows so much about that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, hopefully I'll be able to talk a little bit about that um, down the road. But yeah, without any further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As always, all of the links to everything and to United by Blue's website and resources are going to be in the show notes. Um, And yeah, have a good week, guys. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast and let's welcome Mike to Seeking Sustainability. So I'm sure you've probably talked about this so many times. And I also watched your guys' um, anti-social Earth Day happy hour thing. So, and I know you go into like your, your guys' origin story, but if you could just kind of talk about the origin story of United, United by Blue. And then I know you joined on later, right? Yeah, yeah. So we started uh, United by Blue in 2010. Um, the predecessor to United by Blue was a company that Brian had started when he was in college uh, at Temple called Sand Shack. Uh, and Sand Shack was basically had become a, a boutique jewelry line that he was selling to selling wholesale primarily up and down the East Coast to little boutiques and resort and resort towns and things like that. Um, and we crossed over in time at Temple, uh, but we weren't actually in classes together at the same time uh, he had just won temple's business plan competition had incubator space in oh, the wow. uh in the business building and i was an entrepreneurship major had business classes in the business building and we actually uh ended up meeting there and i started interning with him actually uh, as a social media intern uh interestingly enough did not have a facebook account a twitter account or anything i created them all on the spot essentially but uh shortly thereafter um, we started working on blog posts and everything for for Sand Shack, and then realized that uh, we had a lot of a lot of things in common. Um, 
passion for the ocean was one of them. Um, and we were also a lot closer in age than uh, I would have initially thought I was interning for somebody that was a couple of years older than me. Right. Uh, and so the, the things that we had in common were more than just kind of like work or uh, it, but it was really about the things that we love to do and, you know, being the same age, a lot of things that we uh, enjoyed doing, like being in the outdoors um, and, and water were one of the things that we we're both passionate about. So um, Brian had this idea um, and I remember him coming to me to show me some t-shirts because at the time we were, like I said, we were making women's jewelry for the most part. <laughs> was, it was probably, it was like the key component. So there was this passion there for the, the mission, you know, even at the time, Sandshack was donating 5% of proceeds to ocean conservation efforts. So that was always at the core of what kind of Brian believed. And one of the things that drew me to him as an entrepreneur was that the business was built to do something more than just make money. And the kind of, the concept of social entrepreneurship was so important to me uh, as well. When I thought about what my future would be, you know, at this time, a junior in college that, uh, that I was working with him. Um, so he, he pitched me on this idea for uh, t-shirts and for every t-shirt that we sold, we would pick up a pound of trash from waterways. Uh, I was like, that sounds awesome. How are we going to do it? And he came back to me and said, well, I was hoping that you would help me figure it out. So uh, <laughs> the concept was there in, in terms of how we were going to execute. It was all new. Uh, he had never made or sold t-shirts before. I had never organized a beach or waterway cleanup before. Uh, but we launched out of the blue about six months later um, and started selling uh, the first line, which was just four organic cotton t-shirts with graphics that uh, Brian made a couple of them. Uh, some interns uh, helped make a few other ones. Uh, and we started selling t-shirts that May of 2010. We hosted our first cleanup that same month uh, in Philadelphia on the Schuylkill River, a, a little place called Bartram's Garden, which is probably our most frequented, uh, frequented cleanup location to date um it's become a like perennial spot for us actually 2020 the year of everything is screwed up uh it, it's yeah. gonna be the first year we're not doing a cleanup at bartram's garden since our inception which is kind of i just thought of that right now actually but, i saw your guys's post yeah yeah it's a yeah. bummer it really is it's uh it's been strange and challenging in so many ways and not being able to be out there with uh our team but then a bunch of volunteers makes it that much more challenging but uh either way so that we did our first cleanup we had a, started selling our first products and it was i mean it was hardly a brand let alone a company <laughs> at that point um uh, we were really selling hopes and dreams everything was based on the mission that's the only reason i mean the t-shirts were somewhat cool but they weren't cool enough for <laughs> any any real retailer to bring them in the reason that the retailers were buying the brand though was because of our mission and they believed in the in the mission they could tell we were passionate about it we were authentic about it um and we were out there doing the cleanups you know we were out there and we were in the office monday through friday and out there uh on a river or on a beach on saturday morning uh trying to get as many people out there to clean up with this as possible. And that kind of snowballed um, in the first few years. The line continued to expand uh, as we added new products and new categories. We started attending trade shows that were a little bit more aligned with the industry that we wanted to eventually be in. So we were going to uh, outdoor retailer, meeting all these other cool outdoor brands and these great outdoor retailers um, and some you know, really cool surf shops going to trade shows like Surf Expo down in Florida where you're, oh, where you're at. so cool. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was the way that we initially grew that wholesale base of customers uh, that helped us grow the brand for the first three years. We were, we were wholesale only. So we had a website, but the website wasn't really commerce focused. It was more just educational, had resources about our cleanups and what we were doing as a brand, but didn't have uh, a real strong e-commerce focus. Um, and over that same three years, we were also able to build out uh, the cleanups side of the business. Um, and, you know, we make, uh, we're, we're not bashful at all in being a proud, uh, you know, for-profit company. Um, but that's part of, that's, a, that's part of a deeply rooted belief that for-profit companies can have meaningful impacts, yeah, positive like impacts on the conscious capitalism. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, uh, so that's a strong belief of ours and we feel like that we have the opportunity to do a lot of good work because of 
the business that allows us to grow and the mission that we built with removing one pound of trash from oceans and waterways for every product that we sell has this really tangible connection that ties every single business transaction with the environmental action of us removing that pound of trash. Um, and the reason why we set the mission up that way is that it, it's a form of checks and balances almost to make sure that as the company grows, so too does the, the, the mission. Um, yeah. And that it's never, one doesn't ever outpace the other and it keeps it in a, in a balance that can allow the company to succeed and grow, but they can also make sure that we don't ever lose sight of why we started this thing from the beginning. Um, so as we sell more product, and that was a thought early on, people used to ask us, well, what are you going to do when you sell a million products? You're not going to be able to remove a million pounds of trash. And a million pounds of trash back then seemed impossible. Um, and now we're over three, three million pounds of trash that we've removed from waterways. Um, but early on, you know, the idea was, all right, well, if we can sell a hundred t-shirts, then I'm pretty sure we can pick up a hundred pounds of trash and the same thing should hold true for a thousand t-shirts. And then as the, the brand has grown, we've been able to really become experts in the ocean and waterway kind of cleanup space. And that, you know, we have a team that's fully dedicated to that. Um, so we're just as much, you know, we're part retail brand, but we're also part environmental organization all under the same roof. Um, and that's, uh, that's kind of where, uh, where we're at today, um, with the company as well. So, you know, the sales channels have grown. We have two of our own brick and mortar stores, uh, in Philadelphia. We also have a, a really, uh, fast growing e-commerce business now as well. Um, and we, you know, have done over 300 cleanups, uh, in all 48 of the lower U United States and removed over 3 million pounds of trash. And one of the my favorite stats though, is that we've worked with over 15,000 volunteers over that time. So uh, we've been able to plant those seeds or, you know, create those ripples for whatever analogy you want in those different <laughs> communities um, to hopefully spur more action and more change in those areas. Yeah. As you're talking, I like kept thinking of all these different questions that I had too. And like, well, first of all, when just like the fact that your, your guys is like an apparel brand was founded solely on this like environmental mission is so rare. And then also I think like with the whole idea or like notion of a tangible impact, I think that really affirms the saying of like people can make a difference with their dollar or like through your, through your wallet. And then um, I also wanted to ask like kind of backtracking were you, did you even know anything about like when you got into this about the impact of the apparel industry or is that something you learned later on? No, I mean, I, I knew zero about the apparel industry um, getting into this. Um, and, you know, and honestly, I think that even then, although we were passionate about sustainability, you don't really know until you get into it and you don't understand the true impacts of anything um, yeah. from a business perspective until you're, you're really living it and then you can tr truly see it and track it and understand what that looks like. And that's something that is tough to teach in a textbook. But uh, once you get into it, you realize all the moving parts and all the hands that have touched an item um, and how far it's traveled yeah. and every little piece of plastic along the way and every, um, every box that it touches, uh, all of those things are, are leaving and creating an impact. And, you know, so, for us, when we got started, you know, sustainability to us, if you would have asked us in 2010, looked like organic cotton. That's at the time, there, there was nothing else that we really knew. Um, and to be honest, at that time, there was plenty of customers who had no idea what we were talking about or didn't really care. Oh, um, yeah. That thought had popped in. I had that on like my notes. I was, because I figured like, I mean, 2010 for like a business isn't that long ago, but like in terms of the apparel industry and like this thing we call sustainability, people must've thought you guys are crazy. Well, they did. I remember <laughs> going to, I specifically have a vivid memory at uh, surf expo actually in Orlando being in a trade show and, you know, people come in and they, they ask for, Oh, I like these t-shirts. How much are they? Um, and wholesale pricing is typically half of just in general average is about half of the retail price. So right. say a shirt retails for 30 bucks and it's $15 wholesale. And I remember a retailer coming in and saying, how much are these? I love them. And I was like 15 and like, oh, that's good. So what's the wholesale price? 
And I was like, that, that is the wholesale price 15. And she's like, well, what do you expect us to sell them for? I said, well, the retail is $30. She's like, that's crazy. All of the shirts that we sell are 15 or $20. And with, you know, then the conversation became, well, these shirts are different. They, you know, they support a mission of removing a pound of trash from waterways and that they have organic cotton. Well, what's organic cotton and why are you guys doing these cleanups? And it was, it was a dialogue that people didn't really grasp. I don't think 10 years ago, and it's becoming commonplace business practice now, which is really encouraging to see. Yeah. Um, but, you know, having the conversation about organic cotton, I mean, even with family and friends, I feel like there was a lot of people in my circle who had no idea what organic cotton was, why it was relevant, why it mattered. Um, so, you know, back then what sustainability meant um, and what I knew about sustainability was a lot less than it is today. But I also know that today, there's people on my team right now that know way more about sustainability than I do. It's specifically in their, uh, their areas of the business, you know, Maria who runs the cleanups department for us. Uh, she is, you know, become, I, I may have started the cleanup program at UBB, but she is now the leader of it and she is the expert in it um, and can go into way more depth about some of the uh, ocean and specific waterway issues that we're, that we're currently facing now. Um, and then our product team is another great example. You know, there was times when we, Brian and I were the experts on, on our product and the sustainability of the product. I mean, I remember early on uh, using uh, banana fiber paper bags uh, <laughs> to transport shirts in because we, because we didn't want to use poly bags um, and, and people thought we were crazy for it. And they were actually really cool. They, they ended up being a merchandising nightmare because we would send them to stores in these banana fiber bags, which we thought were really cool. And the retailers thought they were really cool, but they were too cool because they never took them out of the bags. And it's really hard to sell a t-shirt in a bag. So they were, the, the bag was almost too nice because the retailer didn't want to take the shirt out of it. And it's really hard to sell product when it's in the bag. So um, yeah. we eventually moved away from them and we've actually now just have some kind of recent developments as we've gone through this journey of uh, quit single use um, over the past year and a half now where we've been focusing on eliminating all single use pl plastics from the company, specifically from our supply chain um, where we have now eliminated poly bags and about 95% of all of our products um, and have some new solutions for that. And we're actually introducing a new style bag uh, next year that uh, gives us a lot of the kind of safety and protection elements that you get out of a poly bag. Cause that's what's, that's, that's the general thought process of why poly bags are used is because it protects the item through transit uh, through, through the warehousing right. process. But a lot of people don't even know when they get that uh, shirt in the mail um, that many times it's not wrapped in plastic, but it was wrapped in plastic before it was sent to you. Um, yeah. And what we're trying to do is to make sure that nothing in the United Love Blue supply chain is being wrapped in plastic, or you're trying to eliminate all those little plastic components that have become normal um, in our supply chain. But, you know, that's a long winded way of getting back to where we were talking about kind of sustainability and the journey of sustainability. You know, those things, again, I am no longer the expert on product sustainability at United by Blue. We have a team that is incredibly uh, dedicated to pushing the product line forward every season and bringing to us uh, new concepts and uh, new innovations that are out there. Uh, and that's the goal. And that's, that's the role that we now hold in the business is to make sure that we keep the team and ourselves focused on the reason we started this thing in the beginning. Um, and it's not just about making money. It's about making an impact um, and a positive impact. And I think that, you know, that can't just be through our mission. Our mission is the heart of the company, but the product that we sell has to embody the same values that the mission holds in it. So we have to make things, you know, with the most sustainable manufacturers, with the most sustainable fabrics, you know, with the most sustainable transportation methods, we have to make sure we're focusing on the best uh, labor practices. And we are, you know, conscious of the social issues associated with uh, apparel, and accessory manufacturing um, and all of those components go into being a truly sustainable company. And we're far from perfect. Um, you know, this kind of like path to sustainability, we're not a sustainable company. We're 
uh, you know, no one can kind of check the box and say, right. Oh yeah, we're sustainable that there's no yeah. such thing, you know, but I think that we, I can check the box and say that we are on a path to sustainability and that we built this company that is focused on sustainability and that thinks about it with every, uh, really with every decision that we make. Yeah. And that's, what's so tricky about the apparel industry too, but like, honestly, all industries that are using that word, but especially in the apparel industry, there's no like all encompassing like regulation or anything that comp or like standards that companies like have to meet in order to use these terms like sustainable. So they just slap it on their products or, or their social media and customers buy into it. Um, But I also wanted to ask, are there any, cause I saw on your guys's website, you mentioned um, making changes and progression through, throughout your supply chain as over the years. Are there any like specific milestones that were really felt really significant to you as a co-founder or also any milestones moving forward that you want to hit from a sustainability standpoint? Yeah. I mean, so in June of last year, June of 2019, we launched a uh, a program called Quit Single Use, and the the entire program kind of platform behind it was this concept of asking our customer base to evaluate themselves and understand where they're interacting with single use plastics, really on a daily basis and and even throughout the year, uh, because some of this has just become so ingrained in our culture that it's almost subconscious. The oh, plastic yeah. bag, the plastic straw. Um, these items that are plastic water bottles that are used for seconds, if not a minute or two, and then discarded, the vast majority of which are not being properly recycled. They are ending up in landfills and war- or worse, ending up in our oceans eventually. Uh, but the concept that you know plastic doesn't go away. That's why it was created because it's right. a durable, long lasting product. But we just kind of you know, really abuse the use of plastic where there's great applications for plastics. We've now turned it into a convenience that is culturally acceptable, or at least it was culturally acceptable. And I I do feel like that that's starting to change a little bit, but um, there is, you know, for us, when I look back on that quit single use moment, we were not only trying to make our customers aware, but we also said, okay, if we're going to ask you to look internally and, audit your life. Well, we got to do the same and we got to look at ourselves and understand what we're doing wrong. So what we did um, at the beginning of 2019 in preparation for uh, World Oceans Day. So we, we started the quit single use campaign uh, on June 8th, uh, which was World Oceans Day. And the internal process was to really look at our entire supply chain operations product and start identifying where we were using plastics and how much we were using because you can't make change until you first measure where you're at. And that's what that initial process was. So we spent the beginning part of the year identifying, you know, everything from poly bags being the biggest component of uh, the supply chain, which are the plastic bags that almost every garment that you've ever interacted with has been uh, wrapped in at one point for transport um, down to, little things like uh, swift tags, they're called, which is the little plastic piece that connects, you know, in a lot of garments, uh, it connects the price tag or the hang tag to the actual item. Um, It's the quickest and most efficient way to apply a a price to something, but it's also a little piece of plastic. And when you're making tens or hundreds of thousands of pieces of apparel and accessories in a year, that plastic usage adds up and needs to be measured. And uh, so we started kind of measuring all of those things identified, I believe it's seven different areas uh, that we picked up on that we felt could be, uh, could be better that were contributing to our uh, plastic um, usage as a company. And we came clean to our customers and told everybody, here's what we're using. Here's how much we're using. This is what we're going to use in 2019. And we realized this isn't acceptable and we need to do a better job. Um, And uh, at that point forward, started a quit single use task force within the company to start figuring out how we can eliminate these items. Um, And a lot of those conversations were tough, not just uh, internally, but with our external partners. So, you know, 
it's not just standard within apparel companies, but it's standard within yeah. apparel manufacturing. It's standard within a, in uh, retail. So our retailers expect our items to come in plastic. And if they don't come in plastic, there's a lot of, a lot of companies that actually charge us back for sending items to them that are out of compliance that it didn't it didn't come with the packing requirements that they expect and at the factory level you know they thought we were crazy why would why would you want to put stuff on a boat and ship it across the world um and not put it in a plastic bag and you know we've had to educate our suppliers, we have had to educate our retailers as to why this is important, not just to us, but why it should be important to them too. And fortunately we have a great base of manufacturers and retailers that both, that they get it. And um, it ha it wasn't, those weren't easy conversations, but we eventually got there. And, you know, I'm proud that now we we're up over, I believe 95% of United by Blue product is now plastic free which is something that I'm really excited about and proud of that we were able to get to that point. Um, and it's, but it's been a process and it's a, it's a continual evolution because we're not at a hundred percent. So again, getting to quote unquote sustainable or plastic free, like we haven't made it yet, uh, but we're on that path and uh, we made a lot of strides and, and I hope that, you know, I know that we've been able to have conversations with a lot of other companies and I hope that this can be what the future looks like. And, you know, eventually I want it to be that there, there has to be a future where consumers demand that products get to them without plastic. There has to be a future where retailers demand that products hit their shelves without plastic. And there has to be a point where brands like us demand of their manufacturers that do not send me something in wrapped in plastic. Um, and that's how we're going to create this kind of cultural shift and changes by t continuing to move upstream. But I think it does start with the consumer and then, and then kind of moving up to the business level. Um, by changing these behaviors. Yeah, I mean, well, first, consumers have way more power than they think they have. And secondly, I can say as like a student who has like studied retail and like done all of this, like what you guys have done is so impressive because I've, for so many projects, have looked into companies and like there's just such a lack of transparency and just a complete lack of information on so many different fronts. And like, so for me, it, it like affirms the fact that you guys like have a grip on your supply chain and you actually know you're like super aware of everything going on and nothing's like murky because that's just so common. Um, and I think too, like, well, I, when we had to learn in my classes how to make tech packs, everything you have to write in like the poly bag and the, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's just like something that's just, the supply chain is just like infested with thin plastics and, and things that consumers aren't even aware touches their clothing. So that's seriously so, so impressive that you guys have done that. Well, thank you. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, it, like you said, it's, it's industry standard stuff Yeah. that, and a lot of times it's, we don't think about it as a consumer as well until you start consciously looking for it. And it's just like eliminating those single use plastic items uh, from your, your daily habits, people that, are still using plastic water bottles and still using plastic straws and plastic bags, you know, those have become subconscious decisions, but we need to make them conscious decisions. And the same thing goes with the apparel industry. Yeah, absolutely. Bags and a lot of these other items, it's like, just because it's the norm doesn't mean that it should be. Yeah. I also really wanted to talk about all of the fabrics that you guys use because you guys have such an amazing assortment of different fabrics from like hemp to recycled polyester, which hemp is amazing. It's like the mm -hmm. coolest fiber ever. Um, and then also your bison, which I didn't, I had read about an article about it on Fashionista, I think like last mm -hmm. year, yeah. but then I didn't know until recently that it, you had sourced it as like a byproduct of another industry, which is so, 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 so cool. So like, if you could just talk about that and explain like how that idea came to be and how you went about like figuring out how to source it and all of that. Yeah. I mean, on the kind of scale of sustainability i definitely think that our our bison product line oh, our, we call yeah. it our, our bison shield insulation that is by far uh the most superior and i mean hemp is incredible like you mentioned and there's you know still a lot of good things to be said about um recycled polyester or organic cotton for that matter um but i think the the bison is probably the most unique 
uh, to us because we basically created the the supply chain as well as the so cool <laughs> uh, the the entire product line from scratch. Um, and this has been a project that I guess it's I'm trying to think. I think we launched our original bison sock in 2014 so it's it's six seven years in the making now um and it really came out of uh brian uh was sent some bison fiber from a friend um and thought who thought that it could be a cool material to make something out of namely potentially a sock um but and, and the fiber is it's, it's gorgeous. It's, it's incredible. It's super soft. Um, it's, it's lightweight, um, extremely warm, but the biggest challenge with bison and the reason that, uh, I think that it wasn't really commercially used previously is that it has a short staple length. So the fibers are not very long. So for an application like, uh, a sock or any other type of, uh, garment, it becomes, challenging from a strength of fiber standpoint because you're not able to get really long fibers out of it um Mm -hmm. and that was one of the early challenges uh was figuring out how to turn this raw material into uh a a finished product um but stepping back even a little bit further was like well first of all how do we even get bison fiber uh because we can't just keep calling up his friend and asking him to send us more bison fiber so we can make more stuff so we had to go really down to the the farm level and start talking to bison ranchers who are raising these bison. Um, And they were all being raised uh, primarily for their meat. Um, And for, for, so for an entirely separate industry uh, is what these uh, animals are being raised for. But then what we realized and what we learned along the way is that oftentimes uh, the hides are sent to a tannery and at the tannery, the fiber, all of the hair from the hide is actually burned off of the hide because it gets in the way of the tanning process. Or yeah. there are other times where the hides never even make it to a tannery because bison being raised the way that they are, they're raised naturally and they live much longer than cows do. So their hides are much more aged and less appealing in a lot of people's eyes. So there's oftentimes where hides are actually buried or landfilled and they don't even kind of get that second life of using the entire animal and and kind of tanning Mm -hmm. the hides. Um, So what we were able to do is insert ourselves into this supply chain by setting up a shearing facility in Alberta, Canada, where we actually started because we we get uh, fiber from several different sources and there's, uh, there's, instances where we actually get fiber directly from the bison from live bison as well who actually shed the fiber on these uh shedding sticks which they like scratch themselves against the ranchers will collect it that's not the majority of the fiber i wish i I wish i could tell you that's where it's all coming from but that's not where it's all coming from but that's that's a component of it as well um but the bulk of this stuff was a, a complete waste product and it was being either buried or burned and what we were able to figure out was like, there's value in this if we can turn it into a product. Um, and I'll get there in a second. But what we were able to do with the shearing facility is shear these hides and then start kind of collecting all the fiber. And then the hide would then go on its way to the tannery uh, after we were cut. So we were kind of like value adding to an existing supply chain that was there. Um, and from there we have to watch it, wash it because it's pretty gnarly as you can yeah. imagine. <laughs> um, and once we wash it, it goes through a de-herring process. Um, so that just separates out the fibers um, and it separates out the mountain into different grades. So it's actually a pretty specialized machine that this thing goes through. Um, wild. Yeah. It's really crazy that then actually buckets all the different grades of fiber. Uh, we have, uh, an A fiber, a B fiber, and then a prime. And prime is the softest, like inner insulating fiber that is like found close to their necks and their heads. Um, so there's very little amount of that fiber on the hide, uh, but it is like the cashmere of of bison fiber and actually the micron count. So that the, the way that they measure uh, fibers to determine uh, 
how soft eventually they are essentially um, is equivalent to that of what cashmere's micron count is actually. So um, there's some really cool properties there. Um, and then when we started measuring the other properties of bison fiber, we realized that it's actually warmer by weight than wool is as a comparison. And, and wool has such great properties from Ooh. moisture wicking, you know, antimicrobial, yeah. and you get all of those same hypoallergenic. There's no known allergies to bison. Um, and like you get all those same types of properties with bison, but it's actually, a, it's a little bit lighter. So you can make a lighter weight item um, that still provides the same amount of warmth. Um, so after it goes through the dehairing process, we end up with these different grades of fiber, the really soft stuff, and then the really long coarse stuff. And we had to figure out early on what we were going to do with this fiber. Uh, and the primary use at that time was we wanted to make socks out of it. So we found a, a yarn spinning facility that we started to, uh, it took several yarn spinners to first figure out who would be able to turn this short staple length fiber into a stable sock yarn. Uh, and we did that with a blend and we actually blend with some merino wool um, and some, uh, some other components to get what becomes the foundation of our ultimate bison sock, which was the first bison product that we launched um, back in 2014, I believe it was. Um, and was kind of the beginning to this whole bison journey that we've been on as a brand. Um, and as disconnected as it may seem from like, why is this brand first of all, picking up trash from the ocean and, and making products from bison, it all goes back to that kind of root and to the core of who United by Blue is. And this, you know, the brand and the product for that matter was all always just kind of a, a means to the end. And the, and the end being, we want to do this environmental work and we want to be able to have a positive impact. And we believe that business has the power to propel us there. Um, and that, uh, the product is a way to communicate to the customer and to, and to build this thing into something where we can have actual scale and be doing really meaningful environmental work on an annual basis. And then in perpetuity, hopefully, um, and a, about a year after two years after, uh, the process into bison socks, we ran into a situation because we didn't throw any of the fiber out, but we were only using the prime fiber to make the socks. So we literally had pallets and pallets of coarse bison fiber that we had no good use for because the, the fiber would be horrible, it would be scratchy and not, not what you would want to wear next to skin or uh, on a sock. Um, so we started to think about, all right, well, this is getting to be a storage problem there's got to be a use for it. It has all the same properties as the soft fiber, but we just can't wear it next to skin. Um, and that's when we came up with our B100 insulation, which is uh, now our the only form of insulation that we use for all of our outerwear pieces, which is bison insulated outerwear. So uh, we take that coarse fiber and we turn it into a, a batted insulation that can then be used similar to wool batted insulation or on, you know, old, uh, wool jackets that you would find from, you know, 50 years ago, um, that using that same concept and process, it basically gets put into a, a large sheet that then gets sewn into the garments, uh, which is really cool. And the, the, the nice part about it too, is like we can do because it's a batted insulation and not a blown in insulation, like a, a down would be, yeah. um, it never settles. So, you know, and you also don't need to have baffles in the same way that you do in a, in a down jacket, because if you didn't have baffles in a down jacket, all the feathers would fall to the bottom and you have no warmth of top and all the warmth would be at the bottom. And that's why there's baffles in a, in a uh, down jacket like that with bison shield and, and our batted insulation though, because it's in sheet form, we're able to kind of shape it and mold it however we want. And it's all compressed together. So the fibers aren't falling uh, and the customer base that loves to be outside. Uh, it doesn't matter if you get a, a cut or a snag in your jacket either. Uh, whereas in a down jacket, you, you'll start losing feathers uh, in a bison jacket. Uh, you're not losing anything because uh, you have that bad insulation. That's not going to come out. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, what I love too, is you guys like don't have this like linear like way of thinking when it comes to like solutions for textile innovation or whatever, because like obviously the environment as a whole is such a complex issue. So apparel manufacturers and brands need to like have this, like, I think like a, a broader portfolio of 
of approaches and solutions. And I was really, really excited when I found out about the bison thing because I actually tanned a hide, like a deer hide last year. Um, yeah, and I'm signing up for a course. So it's funny because at the time I was like vegan, but my dad and brother hunt. Um, and I, I technically have my license, but I've never used it. Um, <laughs> so, so they thought it was like super weird that I wanted to do this. But it, because I, I wondered, I was like, wait, you guys have these massive deer and like what happens to the hide and obviously like indigenous americans for hundreds or thousands of years have used these hides and like what happens to it and if it goes to a landfill it just rots um and releases methane and Mm -hmm. so i tanned this hide and it was yeah it was pretty dirty there were a lot of deer ticks um and it was such an intense process but i mean that got me thinking about like all animals and you know cows and and bison which are huge so like those hides are like that's a big piece of waste yeah but that's also a big piece of resource and like i mean nature has a lot of solutions and uh, i mean people for thousands of years have used hides as effective you know forms of warmth so yeah i just thought it was so cool when you guys did that um because i had tanned a hide so i was like could kind of relate and it's such That's a good really solution. Neat. So yeah, I was like super, super stoked when I found out about that. And I was like, oh, someone's on the same page <laughs> as me. Yeah. Yeah. And like literally it's it's such a cool story as well to be able to literally turn what would be trash into a product that's not just even equivalent, but superior in a lot of ways to what else is out there. Yeah. And it's honoring the animal. Like true. Like I mean completely. Yeah, like I, it was funny because yeah, I like literally didn't even even eat meat at the time. But then, but I was like, no, this is giving so much respect to the animal and like working really hard. I mean, your machines do the work, but like, yep. <laughs> but like in theory, working really hard to make something out of this product, of this um, resource, really. And so that's so amazing that you guys did that. That's seriously so cool. Uh, yeah, and then other questions. Yeah, we're getting almost right. I don't want to keep you for too long. You're fine. Also, excuse like the lines on my face. I'm in front of a window. <laughs> um, has it been hard? You kind of talked about this earlier, but like one of my biggest questions was like, has it been challenging trying to like navigate being a business, you know, like being a part of like this capitalist society and like obviously having the desire to what I assume like would be to like grow and expand and profit while mm-hmm. still upholding your values and and trying to reduce your environmental impact. Yes, in short. <laughs> I, I think that that's- I appreciate uh, the honesty. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a constant struggle because yeah, we are you know equal part capitalists and environmentalists and they unfortunately sometimes, you know, are at odds with one another, you know, to yeah. the, the easy way is often the least environmentally- sensitive way to do things and you know that but we've held that belief from the beginning so it's not necessarily hard decisions but they are um they have to be very well vetted um because everything when you're trying to build a business you know you can't unfortunately uh do everything perfect you know in a perfect world you know, you wouldn't sell anything at all. There's enough, you know, yeah. there's studies on that say there's enough clothing on this planet for us to never buy another piece of clothing ever again. And the, okay, well then there goes our whole business model. If we can't right. sell clothing to begin with. Um, and there goes the environmental work that we would potentially do. So you have to realize that anything that we're, we're going to do, especially as a consumer brand is going to have an impact. Um, and then it just becomes a matter of balancing that impact and understanding how can we do more good than whatever negative environmental impacts that the business is going to have. And those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves constantly across the board. Um, everything from, you know, how we source our product to how we, um, how we travel as a company, how we, mm. you know, choose to, you know, run our office. Um, and, you know, a lot of those things actually um, you're, I'm sure familiar with uh, certified B corporations. And I think that um, that movement and that group of brands is something that has been really helpful and is great for others to aspire to in terms of looking to how to run a business that 
can be, you know, net positive impact, if you will, that is, is able to grow as a company and become a profitable company, but then also do real meaningful uh, work, whether it's social, environmental, whatever type of good work that they're doing. Um, I think that there is a balance, but they are a lot of times at odds. And some companies, you know, they're donating a percentage of sales or something like that. Uh, you know, for us, it is mean that we have to conserve resources, financial resources, team resources to execute the mission that we've kind of set forth. And it would be really easy to add more profit to the bottom line if we got rid of our mission, but that's contrary to why we started this from the beginning. So that's like a, you know, that's a non-starter. And then in every decision, it's cheaper to buy organic cotton, or I'm sorry, cheaper to buy conventional cotton than it is to buy organic cotton. It's cheaper to buy conventional uh, virgin polyester than it is to get recycled. Um, and all of those decisions were consciously making an effort and paying more to print on FSC paper and, you know, use recycled sources um, in our catalogs. All of those things were constantly battling how do we grow this as a profitable business, but also achieve our core objective, which is to do as little harm as possible while we do along the way. Yeah. And I think like something that I've thought about too, is like an apparel graduate person as an individual is also like the apparel industry is going to continue to exist. Like that's inevitable. Like people aren't going to stop buying and like revert to like making their own clothes from like flax that they grew. Like, and the meat industry is going to continue to exist. And there can, you know, hopefully those industries don't continue on as like fast fashion and like factory farming, but like if we can acknowledge the inevitable, then what can we do to make it better? And like, how can we use those byproducts and make sure nothing goes to waste? And like, you know, how can we acknowledge like the impact of the, the supply chains? Um, hold on. <laughs> and, and then just like do better. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's seriously like what you guys do is so awesome. I really like your company. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then, because I don't want to keep you for too long, um, I want my closing question is that I always ask everyone is um, as an individual and an environmentalist and also, I mean, a business owner, um, what gives you hope for the future? There's a lot of things that give me hope for the future, but I think that when I uh, kind of look at the, and I'll, I'll kind of give you this through a, a, business lens, but that also shares kind of my worldview as well, is that people as resistant to change as they might be, progress and change starts small. And everybody, as cliche as it may sound, has the ability to be part of that change. And it can come in the form of very small actions. It doesn't have to be, you know, eliminating single-use plastics entirely from your life. But start by bringing your own bag to the grocery store and start by asking the waitress not to bring you that plastic straw. And those are little things that, you know, in this kind of worldview uh, of uh, thinking and being sometimes overwhelmed by the issues that are facing us can feel like, denying that pl plastic bag or plastic straw is really having no impact because, you know, who am I? And I'm one person out of this entire planet. But if everybody would have that same mindset, then we could start making some changes. And if you have that mindset at the store or at the, at the restaurant, uh, then maybe the people around you will take note of that. And that's how we start this kind of cultural shift and cultural change. So my, my suggestion would just be there is hope because I've seen the power of those small changes. And I've seen uh, a generation, I feel like that I'm in, but even those that are, that are younger than me that understand the importance of preserving the environment and appreciating what we have and not wasting it. And I think that even if we start making small steps, we can take those, learn from them and, and grow with them. 
That was really good. Yeah. And I think honestly, the people I, I'm going to gonna be honest, the people who are like, my, my straw doesn't make a difference. Those are my least favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> I got into like a verbal fist fight with a guy in one of my classes because he was like, he was like individual impact isn't real. Like the, it's the government. And I was like, I beg to differ, sir. Um, but yeah, you know, that's, that's so true. And it's definitely, I mean, as someone who like is studied to be in an industry that's pretty terrible, I learned it's, it's really uplifting to see a company like yours. Like I can genuinely say that, that you guys are, are really at the top of my list of like companies that I send to people and like uh, when I first found out about you guys, I sent it to my brother because your website to my brother, cause he fly fishes and he knows nothing about clothing or doesn't care. <laughs> but I was like, look, this is a really cool company. And I really think this would be up your alley. Um, so yeah, it's, it's so encouraging and like, it definitely makes me feel like I'm not entering this industry that I'm, and I'm not taking part in something that is inherently terrible, um, that there's other options and and whatnot. So seriously, thank you for the work you do. And no, thank you. I mean, like you going back to your last question, even it's like, you are the example of that hope that I see and is why I think there's positivity because, you know, you're somebody in an industry that recognizes the challenges that this industry have created and you want to make a difference. Build your own podcast. You know, oh God. Take the right steps to, to, to talk to people and to, to move uh, an industry forward. So like, what is the industry going to look like in 10 years? I believe that it's going to look better than it does right now and cleaner. And it's going to be because of people like yourself. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning into this episode of Seeking Sustainability. If you enjoyed this episode or any others that you've listened to, then make sure to follow the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. Also, to stay connected, you can follow the podcast Instagram at Seeking Sustainability underscore podcast and my personal Instagram at julia.planford. As always, feel free to reach out to me regarding any questions, comments, or episode requests. And of course, share this podcast with anyone who you feel might be interested in learning a bit more about environmentalism and sustainability as well. Thanks everyone, and I will talk to you guys soon.